This is FM 100.5, 101.9, AM 1450, and WGNSRadio.com. Rutherford County's Place to Talk. Stand by, Rutherford County. The WGNS Action Line continues a search for truth. We welcome everyone to the program. My name is J. Paul Newman. My usual co-host, Rutherford County District Attorney General Jennings Jones, will not be with us today. But General Jones will be back on our next broadcast. Sitting in today for General Jones will be Assistant District Attorney Trevor Lynch. This is our 85th broadcast which marks the beginning of our eighth year of broadcasting on WGNS. As we begin year eight, we thank Bart Walker, and we thank WGNS for providing the airtime, and we also thank our producer, Nick Cohen. Most of all, we thank you for listening. In our Inside the Court segment, Assistant District Attorney Trevor Lynch will tell you about recent and upcoming grand jury, general sessions, and circuit court activity. Then, in our What's the Law segment, former District Attorney General Bill Weitzel will discuss an area of the law that you will find to be both interesting and educational. It is the law regarding the process our state must follow whenever a person wanted for a criminal offense has fled our state and has arrived in another state or country in order to escape justice. It is the law of extradition. And in our Call to Conviction segment, we will highlight the case that is currently being prepared for broadcast on cable television. It is one of my most memorable trial cases. It is a case that stands for these important propositions. One, we should never be content to leave a murder unsolved. Two, we should always seek some degree of closure for the murder victim's family. Three, we should never allow a murderer to go unpunished. Fourth, we should always seek justice, ethically and fairly, with not only passion, but also with compassion for all concerned. And finally, we should always seek justice and not revenge. The case that highlights these values is the 1982 murder of Erastus Gene Stump. Finally, if time allows, we will close the program with our closed case profile segment. We'll be asking for your help in solving a mystery. We will begin the broadcast after you listen to these important messages. As cold and flu season approaches, one of the best things that you can do to give somebody who is sick is a quart of Demas's chicken and rice soup. This is Peter Demas with Demas Family of Restaurants. This soup is my grandmother's recipe, and we have used this soup in order to help our family whenever we are sick. Just gives us a good comfort feeling. 
One of the things that you can also do is you can now ship that soup anywhere across the United States. And you can order that soup online at DemasFamilyKitchen.com. Weather and Traffic This Hour brought to you by First Class Sales and Service in Smyrna. First Class Sales and Service is your hometown auto repair shop, and they're reminding you to keep up on that cart maintenance as temperatures cool. And if you're a teacher or first responder in Rutherford County, ask how you can save on labor costs for your next job. First Class Sales and Service is located at 307 Hazelwood in Smyrna and reminding you not to wait on that next car repair job. Now here's a look at the weather and traffic. We'll see mostly sunny skies here for this afternoon, a high in the low 70s. Northeast winds of 5 to 10 miles per hour. Tonight, mostly clear and a low near 48. I'm meteorologist Jennifer Wojcicki on News Radio WGNS. Currently, it's 45. Good morning. It's actually still in pretty good shape right now on 840 as you head over towards Franklin, Williamson County. We've seen a ton of radar up and down sections of 24 this morning. Earlier out there around Epps Mill Road, you still got all that traffic flow coming in from Coffee County on 24 westbound into Rutherford County. Hey, if you're looking to buy or sell a home, call Tony and Nikesha Tate, the Tate team that will assist you with all your real estate needs. Call 554-9795. I'm Commander Chuck with your on-time traffic. Hi, this is Dave Kibben of Music World and Drummer's Den and Animal City Pet Center. I'd like to give a thank you to the great people of Murfreesboro and Rutherford County. Our music store this year will celebrate its 15th anniversary, and our Animal City business celebrates 30 years. And we're just very thankful to the great people of the area for all the support over the years. Come in anytime. Music World and Drummer's Den and Animal City Pet Center. This is Inside the Courts. A look at this month's trials, pleas, and grand jury action. Inside the Courts is presented as a courtesy of the Rutherford County Clerk's Office. Good morning, everyone. This is Assistant District Attorney Trevor Lynch. And in this segment, I will be your tour guide as I take you inside the courts. We want to begin this segment by stating that none of the defendants named in the upcoming trials or hearings have been convicted unless otherwise stated. And, of course, they are presumed by our law to be innocent. With that as a prelude, we will now go inside the courts. I'd like to first begin by telling you about the Devin Gailey, Brent Ross, and Vernice Ferrer case. On June 26, 2019, deputies with the Rutherford County Sheriff's Department responded to a residence on Walnut Grove Road. Mr. Terry Barber was found deceased on the floor with his hands and feet bound together. Detectives Ty Downing and Steve Brown have been assigned as lead investigators. Following their investigation, the detectives developed several individuals as suspects in this case. Brent Gailey, Devin Gailey, Brent Ross, and Vernice Ferrer have been charged with the first-degree murder, especially aggravated kidnapping, aggravated robbery, aggravated burglary, and fraudulent use of a debit card. All three defendants have appeared before the General Sessions Court of Rutherford County and are represented by separate counsel. After a preliminary hearing before a General Sessions judge for Rutherford County, the matter was bound over to the grand jury. In June of 2020, a Rutherford County grand jury indicted the three defendants for all charges. The defendants will next appear before the Division II Circuit Court 
on January 7, 2021. Some upcoming trials. David Rowan, February 8, 2021. A trial date is scheduled for David Rowan in the Division Three Circuit Court of Rutherford County, Tennessee. Mr. Rowan has been indicted by a Rutherford County Grand Jury for three counts of rape, two counts of sexual contact with a minor by an authority figure, one count of sexual battery by an authority figure, and three counts of statutory rape by an authority figure. Christopher Medlock, scheduled to go to trial on December 14, 2020, before the Division II Circuit Court of Rutherford County. Mr. Medlock has been indicted by the September Grand Jury for two counts of aggravated sexual battery and one count of attempted aggravated sexual battery. Some of our cases that have been disposed of, Rontavis Holmes, on September 29, 2020, Mr. Holmes entered a plea of guilty to aggravated child abuse. Mr. Holmes received a 13-year sentence to serve at 100% at the Tennessee Department of Corrections. Mr. Holmes was indicted in December of 2017 by a Rutherford County Grand Jury. The state was represented in that matter by Assistant District Attorney Hugh Ammerman. Travis Perdue, on September 1st of 2020, Mr. Perdue entered a plea of guilty to two counts of aggravated sexual battery. Mr. Perdue received a 15-year sentence to serve at 100% at the Tennessee Department of Corrections. Mr. Perdue will be placed on the Tennessee Sex Offender Registry for life. Mr. Perdue was indicted in February of 2020 by a Rutherford County Grand Jury, and the state was represented by Assistant District Attorney Sharon Reddick. On October 12th of 2020, Benjamin Hartshaw went to trial in the Division II Circuit Court of Rutherford County after being indicted in July of 2018 for six counts of rape of a child and four counts of aggravated sexual battery. After deliberation, a Rutherford County jury convicted Mr. Hartshaw on all counts. Mr. Hartshaw is scheduled to be sentenced in the Division II Circuit Court on December 17, 2020, by Judge David Bragg. Mr. Hartshaw faces a possible sentence between 25 and 288 years in prison at 100%. The state was represented by Assistant District Attorneys Sharon Reddick and Sarah Davis. On July 26 of 2020, deputies with the Rutherford County Sheriff's Department responded to a residence on Asbury Road. On scene, deputies discovered the body of Mr. Eric Bixler. A 911 call was made by neighbors after Mr. Bixler's girlfriend ran to their home covered in blood. Detectives Ty Downing and Steve Brown were assigned as lead investigators. After the conclusion of their investigation, the detectives charged Mr. Christopher Robinson and Mr. Christopher White of Hopkinsville, Kentucky, with the first-degree murder of Mr. Bixler. 
as well as two counts of especially aggravated robbery, two counts of especially aggravated kidnapping, aggravated burglary, and employing a firearm during commission of a dangerous felony. Mr. Robinson and Mr. Wright appeared before a General Sessions judge in Rutherford County represented by separate counsel. A five-and-a-half-hour preliminary hearing was held on October 29, 2020 in the General Sessions Court for Rutherford County. At the conclusion of the hearing, the matter was bound over for grand jury consideration. Mr. Robinson and Mr. White await presentment of their case to a Rutherford County grand jury. To add into this segment, Mr. Michael Thomas. During the month of July in 2019, Michael Holden Thomas engaged in a crime spree spanning across three counties, Rutherford County, Cannon County, and DeKalb County. On or about July 4th of 2019, Mr. Thomas began his spree when he was alleged to have taken the vehicle of a Cannon County woman without her permission. On July 7th of 2019, while investigating the alleged theft, deputies with the Cannon County Sheriff's Department attempted to stop Mr. Thomas in the vehicle, and Mr. Thomas refused to stop and took officers on a high-speed pursuit. For public safety reasons, the pursuit was terminated by law enforcement. On July 29, 2019, the deputies again made contact with Mr. Thomas and attempted to conduct a traffic stop on Mr. Thomas. Once again, he refused to stop the vehicle, and a high-speed pursuit began. Again, due to the risk to the public, the pursuit was ended by law enforcement. Mr. Thomas abandoned the vehicle a short time after the pursuit. On July 24th, Mr. Thomas was involved in a physical altercation with his girlfriend while he was babysitting two children. Mr. Thomas began aggressive, became, became aggressive and violent to the point that law enforcement officers tried to enter the residence. He fled the residence, stole a vehicle without the owner's consent, and evaded deputies again. Mr. Thomas appeared before the, general, or before the circuit court on November 5th of 2020 and was sentenced to eight years in prison, consecutive to a five-year Kentucky parole violation, followed by eight years on state supervised probation. That concludes this segment of the broadcast. Please do not touch the dial. We will return after this short break. The Action Line, Rutherford Issues, The Morning News, Swap and Shop, The Cruel Station, WGNS. We're News Radio, WGNS, 100.5, 101.9, 1450, online and on your phone at WGNSradio.com. Listen live to WGNS Radio on our website, and Alexa, or Google devices. Search WGNS Radio for on-demand podcasts in iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Plus, we have direct links to podcasts at WGNSRadio.com. Precision Air knows you want the air inside your home as safe and clean as possible. Clean the air in your home with an affordable UV system, reducing microorganisms including bacteria, viruses, and allergens. Call Precision Air, 615-930-0088. That's 615-930-0088. We're loud, we're proud, we're blue. WGNS AM and FM, your home for the Middle Tennessee Blue Raiders. Money issues? There's someone local you can talk to. Financial Coaching Radio with certified financial planner Jason Qualls. Weekdays at 4 on News Radio WGNS. What's the law? Time now for an examination of the laws of Tennessee. 
This is not intended to be legal advice and is being presented solely for the informational benefit of our listening audience. You should always consult with an attorney whenever you need or rely on legal advice. Uh, Paul, this morning I want to talk a little bit about extraditions. And extradition is the surrender by one state called the asylum state of an individual accused or convicted of an offense in another state known as the demanding state. And uh, rendition is a return of that individual to the demanding state. And generally uh, what happens is an individual is located in another state uh, wanted for a crime, say, uh, here in Tennessee. We notify the other state, and usually that's done through the NCIC, that he is wanted here. If he is located, the other state would arrest him uh, and take out what is known as a fugitive from justice warrant. They would then take the defendant uh, in front of a judge, and that judge would determine whether he wished to waive extradition or if they uh, are going to fight extradition. And uh, if they refuse extradition, then there is a a process that starts uh, that involves the governors, in effect, of both states. Uh, Had refused to be extradited, then the district attorney's office would have been notified of this, and we would have furnished the governor here, the governor's office here, with certain information. Number one, we would have furnished them with the charging instruments or the outstanding warrants uh, charging the person here. And uh, in addition to that, uh, we would give them identifiers uh, such as his date of birth, social security number, a physical description, a picture if we had it. Uh, We would include uh, the location where the state where he's located, the county, the jail that he's in. We would uh, also uh, request that the governor appoint officers to go and pick him up in the event the extradition was granted. So this this is the request that we uh, make to our governor's office, who then puts this information together, has it reviewed by the governor's extradition Uh, officer and forwards it to the state then he issues what's known as a governor's warrant that that orders the uh, person in question to be arrested and held for tennessee Uh, the the paperwork that we send up usually the warrant if it's signed signed by a judge of course or an indictment signed by the district attorney Uh, the clerk of this court will certify that that's the judge's signature. In addition, the judge turns around and certifies that the clerk of the court is the clerk of the court, and that's the clerk's signature. So it's a cross-certification. The documents have to be notarized. I I know when I would do the paperwork, and I know when Jennings does it, uh, we sign a number of copies because it goes to various uh, officials both in our state and also in the asylum state. Uh, Once that governor's warrant is issued, then the state of Tennessee and its agents are given a certain period of time to go and uh, pick the fugitive up uh, and return them to the state of Tennessee to face charges. Now, generally, uh, that's the way it works. 
the the authority for extradition is actually derived from the United States Constitution. And because each state is a separate sovereign government, uh, a sovereign territory, uh, you just can't go into another state and grab somebody and bring them back to Tennessee. Uh, and that's the purpose of, of the uh, constitutional provision regarding extradition and also the various statutes that have been passed. And, in fact, there is a uniform uh, extradition law that has been put in place that all the states have adopted. Now, different states may have different time periods or different demands, but in general there is a uniform procedure for extradition across the entire United States. It's um, In a state like Tennessee, we've got eight other states that border us. So a, a, a big part of our population lives within 50 miles of another state, and it's not un- not uncommon for people to go to Kentucky or Alabama, North Carolina, or wherever. So Tennessee has quite a bit of extradition, extradition requests that w- that we have to deal with because of that. Uh, and I know uh, by the time I retired, and I know uh, General Jones now, there is extradition business every single day. We're either putting a request in the NCIC or we're being notified by another state that someone that uh, has outstanding warrants here has been located there. Uh, And it's almost a daily thing that the Sheriff's Department is asking us, do we want to extradite somebody? Uh, And uh, I I don't know what it is, but it seems like everybody ends up on the West Coast to me, which, uh, of course, is the most expensive place to go uh, get somebody. Uh, I always always, uh, took the position that if someone had committed a crime here, we wanted them. Now, obviously, if it's littering, uh, driving without a driver's license, uh, you don't want to spend thousands of dollars to go to California and bring somebody back here so they can pay pay a $50 fine. It just doesn't make economic sense. But uh, cases, uh, even some misdemeanor cases like domestic violence, for, for instance, I always took a position we should extradite in those situations. Even though uh, it was an expensive proposition, I thought that everyone should be held accountable uh, for the actions uh, that that they did in committing a crime here. So uh, it can be very complicated. Uh, I know uh, also that uh, we think of extradition as somebody that's wanted for a crime we have a lot of people that are charged here and then uh, may be admitted to bail and then run off, uh, what's known as bail jumping, and they're located elsewhere. And so that's another situation. Uh, maybe they have not, they've already been charged here, already been to court here, and then they just flee the state uh, and, and jump bond. So we, we have those situations. And mentioning bond, I should say that in all situations other than a capital first-degree murder case, the defendant uh, or the fugitive is entitled uh, to be admitted to bail. Now, that doesn't mean that they get to get out. That just means they're entitled to have a bail set. uh, And and if they've already run off, I think as a general rule, it's pretty common knowledge that that bail is going to be high because there's certainly a flight risk. So uh, most of the time, the the asylum states will honor our request to set a high bond uh, so we can assure that we get the person back here. 
one other uh, little idiosyncrasy of extradition. Uh, if a person has gone on a crime spree, for instance, in the state of Tennessee, and they've committed crimes in Rutherford County, Wilson County, Davidson County, Sumner County, uh, and, say, Rutherford County uh, locates and wants to bring them back, and we do that, they must go to all those other counties before they're returned to any other state. If we brought them back, prosecuted them, uh, and say for whatever it was, they served some sentence and then got out on probation and they were transferred to another state, if they had not, if those other jurisdictions had not notified us, then they could not prosecute those cases in the future. Once a person is returned to the state under the extradition laws, that person must face all charges in that state while they're here because once, if they leave the state, uh, say maybe they've got another sentence to go serve in another state, once they leave here, you can't prosecute them uh, for those crimes. Uh, so that's, that's something that you have to be uh, wary of when you get somebody here to make sure you check and see if they're wanted in other counties or other jurisdictions here. Uh, another thing that uh, I think is is uh, is key in the extradition is try to be as cooperative as you can. And I know uh, in situations where where our office was involved, in other words, Tennessee was the asylum state. We always tried to be as cooperative as we could in making sure uh, to notify the other state, uh, to tell them exactly what they needed to send to us so we could uh, send it to the governor uh, so that the governor's warrant could be issued. Uh, you know the attorney general's office helps in, in checking all the paperwork, and it's very important that it be in order. And so we would assist in that regard because you never know when uh, – next week or next month you're going to be asking that state to do the same same thing for you now if a person uh, is being held for extradition they can request a hearing once the governor's warrants issued they can request a hearing it's it's in the form of a habeas corpus saying that i am being illegally detained and they can contest the extradition and generally, uh, what you contest is the paperwork's not in order. I am not the person uh, that is wanted in this other state. I was not in the other state at the time the crime was committed. So the, the focus of extradition habeas corpus proceedings are very narrow. But on rare occasions, you may have a situation where the person has the same name, but it's not, it's not that person. And that's why it's important to have photographic evidence if you can get it uh, to show that. And one other thing, and then I'll, then I'll stop because you could go on forever about extradition and detainers. But if a person contests extradition, while they are in jail in the asylum state, if that extradition is ultimately granted and they're returned to Tennessee, they do not get jail credit for the time that they were in jail in the other state. And, and I'm 
I believe the reason is is because that's a proceeding in that state has nothing to do other than we're asking they be sent back. Whereas if they acknowledge, yes, I am the person, and yes, I will not contest this, they get credit for the time they're in jail because in that sense it's just a matter of them waiting on us to act and not proceedings in the other state. So uh, that's kind of a thumbnail sketch of it. It's very important. Uh, it comes up all the time, more and more. The bigger Rutherford County gets, the more extraditions we have. And uh, I know that the sheriff's office is, uh, travels quite a bit to, to return these fugitives from justice. Let me ask you this, Bill. You've told us about extradition as it involves the uh, continental United States. What happens if someone not only flees the United States but goes to another country? Well, it it the difference between a, a, a extradition in the United States and a foreign country is the difference between a burglary case and a capital murder case. It becomes ten times more complicated. Uh, many times, if it's a, a, a first degree murder case, a lot of countries if if they will not extradite unless you agree not to seek the death penalty because there are a lot of other countries that don't have the death penalty. There, there's all kinds of international uh, situations involved, especially if the person uh, is, is a citizen of another co country and has been here and committed a crime here. They're very meticulous. In addition to that, the federal government has to become involved, uh, and uh, it becomes ten times more complicated in the paperwork aspect. I know of one case where we're seeking to get two people out of Great Britain, a friendly country, and we've had the time of our life. It's been going on for almost five years. Uh, try to get two people on some serious drug charges back, and the problem doesn't see with, seem to be with Great Britain. It seems to be with our Justice Department and trying to get the paperwork to satisfy them. WGNS talks about all things local. It's Rutherford Issues with Brian Barrett. Weekday mornings at 10 on WGNS, AM, FM, and online. Hey now, you're an all-star. Get your game on, go play. Hey Weather and traffic this hour brought to you by First Class Sales and Service in Smyrna, your hometown auto repair shop. They're reminding you to keep up on that car maintenance as temperatures cool. And if you're a teacher or first responder in Rutherford County, Ask how you can save on labor costs for your next job. That's First Class Sales and Service in Smyrna, located in 307 Hazelwood in Smyrna. And reminding you not to wait on that next car repair job. Now here's a look at the weather and traffic. We'll see mostly sunny skies here for this afternoon. A high in the low 70s. Northeast winds of 5 to 10 miles per hour. Tonight, mostly clear and a low near 48. I'm meteorologist Jennifer Wojcicki on News Radio WGNS. Currently, it's 45. Good morning. It's actually still in pretty good shape right now on 840 as you head over towards Franklin, Williamson County. We've seen a ton of radar up and down sections of 24 this morning. Earlier out there around Epps Mill Road, you still got all that traffic flow coming in from Coffee County on 24 westbound into Rutherford County. Hey, if you're looking to buy or sell a home, call Tony and the Keisha Tate, the Tate team that will assist you with all your real estate needs. Call 554-9795. I'm Commander Chuck with your on-time traffic.
Wolf Wagon Mobile Dog Grooming. Grooming big dogs, little dogs, small dogs. The Wolf Wagon Mobile Dog Grooming. Grooming dogs of all sizes. Anxious dogs. Call 615-663-8139. Feisty dogs. Find them on Facebook. The Wolf Wagon. Turn your fingers into a microphone and talk back. WGNSRadio.com is Rutherford County's online source for what matters to you. WGNSRadio.com. From call to conviction. Time now for a look back at one of the more intriguing and important cases for this community. From the crime, the investigation, to the prosecution. These are the facts in the case of State of Tennessee versus Randy McFarland. On April 28, 1982, two fishermen discovered a partially decomposed body near the edge of Percy Priest Lake. Rutherford County Sheriff's Detective David Grisham arrived at the scene to find the decomposing body, but he found no skull. They did, however, locate skull fragments near the body. The body was checked for a wallet or identification, and neither was found. They did recover a list of names and telephone numbers in a pocket of the victim's jeans. The investigators also collected a lighter near the body, which bore the inscription, Gene. A shotgun wadding was also found in the area. Rutherford County Deputy Coroner Michael Carthen believed that the body had been there approximately four to six weeks. To assist in the investigation and identification of the body, Detective Grisham contacted Dr. William Bass, a forensic anthropologist with the University of Tennessee. After reconstructing the skull fragments, Dr. Bass determined that the victim died from a major gunshot wound to the skull. He also believed that the shot came from behind and created an exit wound above the right eye. Dr. Bass determined that a shotgun was the likely weapon. Through the list of telephone numbers, the investigators contacted a friend of the victim who was able to identify the victim's decomposing body. The identification was corroborated by the cigarette lighter inscribed with the name Gene. The body was identified to be the remains of Erastus Gene Stump. Although there were initially an infinite number of suspects in the victim's death, ultimately their investigation revealed that only one person had the motive to kill Gene Stump. On April 29, 1982, Deputy Pickle with the Rutherford County Sheriff's Office contacted that person, a person who was a friend and a co-worker of Gene Stump. That person was Randy McFarland. McFarland told police that he had last seen Gene Stump on March 29, 1982 at the Stump home. He said that Gene Stump arrived with some people in a van and that Gene Stump had told him that he was leaving with the people in the van and going to Ohio. McFarland said that he never heard from Gene Stump again. No arrests were made, and the case remained unsolved for over 20 years. The case became a cold case. And now to discuss the investigation of the cold case and how it ultimately was solved, we welcome Major Bill Sharp and Dan Goodwin to the show. Good morning, Paul. morning. Can you tell us how y'all first got involved in the investigation and what caused y'all to decide this is a case that we should work on? When the unit first formed on July 1st of 2007, what we did was looked at all of the existing files of uh, open unsolved homicides and other crimes that we had. It was about 14 to 15 at that point. And what we looked for were solvability factors. Uh, Bill had 
fiddled around briefly in 2001 with this case, and we already had a good idea that this was highly solvable because a lot of the groundwork that was laid back in 1982. Uh, in that interview with Pickle, one of the things that was discovered in 1982 was that after Gene left with the hippies in the van, that uh, he'd filed an income tax return. McFarland had filed an income tax return, and it was mailed to his house, and he subsequently signed it and had his wife at the time pass it at the bank, thereby getting Gene's tax return for 1981 uh, and profiting in that way. Uh, his guns disappeared. The vehicle that Gene Stump owned was eventually given to his wife. But basically that's the point where we're at uh, when we picked it up in 2007. And go ahead. Let me ask you this. One of the reasons we have the program is to ask people for help in solving these crimes. How useful was it for you to go out and interview people who knew Gene Stump at the time but hadn't been interviewed in over 20 years, particularly uh, maybe some of the people who were married to the defendant at that particular time and things of that nature? Can you tell us about that? Uh, you know that when when we start these cases or any investigation, it's important to locate the family members, ex-family members, and so forth. So locating uh, McFarland's first wife um, was very important. She was able to give us details of the case. Although she was interviewed originally uh, after the the body was discovered, she did inform us that out of the situation in which she was in, that being married to McFarland, that she wasn't quite truthful with it. So, you know, she was able to uh, expound on the, her original uh, interview to give us more detail, which led us on to other ex-wives, neighbors, and friends of McFarland who were able to give us background on, on uh, Randy. So would it be safe to say that one person coming forward may create kind of a domino effect where one lead leads to another? That's the best way to describe it because that's usually what happens. Once you get that first person comfortable talking to you, giving you names, and then you go toward the, to, you know, forward to the second uh, person that they give you. It, it is a domino effect. Can you tell us about y'all's interactions and interviews with with uh, the defendant in this case, Mr. Randy McFarland? And can you tell us a little bit about what he had been doing that you discovered over the twenty years that he was waiting in society? Uh, as Bill mentioned, um, after we spoke to his first wife, we determined from her that she'd stayed with him a number of more years. Her her main goal. It was, it was a horrible relationship. She was trying to get her sons almost to adult age before she could depart the relationship. Uh, she told us about a subsequent wife. We'd already had information about the th what turned out. We thought it was a second wife, but it turned out to be the third. As we began speaking, as the trail spread out through all the people whose lives he'd injured over the years, we found out that he actually had a second wife that no one had known about. We found that lady, and just like his first wife that we'd spoken to he made multiple admissions to her as well the third wife he made uh over 200 admissions to killing gene stump um he was with her from about 95 through 2006 i believe but you know paul what we've found out um when we work these cases is how they reinvent themselves and and become something they weren't when they were younger and before these uh terrible crimes we found mcfarland in Virginia, Bristol, Virginia, as an uh, electrical engineer. Now, this is a man who had, I think, may have had a GED, um, but he passed himself off as an electrical engineer, living a different lifestyle, living something beyond what he, he was. So we find it intriguing that normally these, these suspects do in, reinvent themselves, and it's, it's very, very interesting. 
concerning that and reinventing themselves, I, I noticed in, in prosecuting the case, me and General Weitzel both prosecuted that and had the honor of working with you all on this case. Mr. McFarland had uh, several names, did he not? Yes, he changed his name legally twice after the murder. Once his first marriage dissolved, he married another lady. He did one new variation of his name, changed the spelling on the last name. It was L-I-N, like is normal around here in Middle Tennessee. He changed it to uh, Mick Farlane, M-C-F-A-R-L-A-N-E, and then finally he morphed that into uh, Mac Farlane, M-A-C-F-A-R-L-A-N-E. He also changed his first name legally a couple of times there, too. You know, although it's not necessary to actually prove motive in a trial, a jury always likes to know what the motive was. Uh, were y'all able to determine the motive in this case? Yes, sir. Um, they worked together at Thompson Green Machinery, uh, where they overhaul cat caterpillar gear, and uh, they were working in the paint shop together. And they were very much a part of the uh, cowboy urban cowboy bar scene at that time. But uh, besides getting drunk and chasing women. Uh, what they liked to do was use drugs, and then they would rob drug dealers. They would do armed robberies of gas stations and stores. They were partners in crime. When you talk to Mr. McFarland, can you tell us about your interactions with him and what, if anything, he said regarding the murder of Mr. Stump? Well, basically, he minimized his story, uh, changed facts from what he told police in 1982. And truth be known, we actually went up there with an indictment for him in our pocket and after he told us that set of lies, we arrested him. And paraphrasing just a little bit here, <clears throat> excuse me, is when we interviewed, while we were interviewing McFarland, uh, he just looked at us and said, prove it. You know, you, you, you never prove it. So, um, again, it's, it's almost like a condescending attitude while speaking with us that he placed himself, you know, at, at a higher level than Dan and I. So uh, it, it's a real arrogant attitude that he, he presented. How many years passed between the time that this murder occurred and uh, do you remember when y'all arrested him and brought him to justice? He was arrested uh, in 2008, so I'm terrible at math, but it was uh, a long over, time. Over 20 years. <laughs> 80, 80, yeah, it was well over 20 years. Sorry, now, my math skills are weak. Ultimately, he was convicted of first-degree murder and got a life sentence. Is that correct? Yes, sir. And during the trial, there was one interesting aspect that I'd like to involve, the movie Miller's Crossing. Can you tell us what role that particular movie played and how that was used at trial? While McFarlane was married to his third wife, he made her watch that film. It's a Coen Brothers film, the same people that did Raising Arizona and No Brother Where Art Thou, but it was an early crime film. And it contained scenes in there that were very much like the site where Gene Stump was murdered, and he made hundreds of admissions to her. Uh, the best prosecutorial team in the state of Tennessee and perhaps America <laughs> was able to get that in at trial, and uh, that became a, subs uh, a subject for appeal, but the uh, appellate court ruled that it was perfectly okay the way it was done. Okay, as I understand it, the location where the body was ultimately discovered was, can you describe that location for us? Yes, sir. It was near the end of uh, South Lamar Road on what at the time was Corps of Engineer land that was open to the public, a narrow lane lined with trees and that's just like a scene for the movie where the bad guy takes another bad guy out and kills him in the woods and so ultimately you showed the jury the scene from the movie mm -hmm. that was so so similar to the scene where the body was found yes sir anything else y'all like to share with us about that particular case 
not just this case, but all the cases, even the ones that are, have not been solved. In many of these incidents, the, the uh, subject, the, the suspect in these, will give little bits of evidence or tidbits of the case to a significant other. And exactly in this case, he talked about taking the boots from the victim. That's something that only the killer would have known. So when we found a witness to discuss it, this case interview, she was able to tell us that he, he informed her. So, again, to the audience out there, if, if someone co- confesses and talks about these cases and tells you something, come forward. That little bit can can solve a case. And I believe in this particular case there were actually some friends of his that he had told that he had killed somebody. Is, is that correct? He told a number of people besides his wife. One in particular was a who was one of our witnesses was a kingpin in the uh, – what they call the uh, cornbread, mafia. cornbread mafia in Kentucky. Um, a great deal of the time he spent uh, after the murder was in the state of Kentucky, and he met this fellow and worked for him at a bar, and he wound up testifying for us. He'd never even left this county before, but he found some of the other things uh, that McFarland had been involved in, and he was more than willing to testify about the murder admissions that he'd heard. Well, I want to congratulate both of y'all on solving this cold case. Y'all have solved many of them. Y'all are a shining example of how detectives should work on the case and how to treat the victims and the victims' family. And we really appreciate y'all being here today. Uh, Thank you, Paul, and I want to thank you in general and look forward to have some more cases with you guys. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. As we end our program today, we thank our producer, Nick Coyne, we thank WGNS for providing the airtime. Most of all, we thank you for listening. Our next scheduled broadcast is Friday morning, December the 4th at 8:10 a.m. on your good neighbor station, WGNS. We leave by saying, a safe community is the responsibility of each and every one of us. For my usual co-host Jennings Jones and today's special co-host Trevor Lynch. This is Paul Newman, bidding all of you a safe and blessed day. The District Attorney's Office thanks you for listening to today's program. If you have any information regarding criminal activity in our community, please contact one of our law enforcement agencies. The information presented on today's show is solely for informational benefit and not intended to be legal advice. You should always consult an attorney whenever you need or rely on legal advice. Rutherford County's most trusted name in news. Talk Radio WGNS, Murfreesboro.